Previously on Flying the Line, we examined the reasons behind Braniff's demise. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including Pilots for Pilots, our emergency relief fund, where pilot donations help provide grants to those who have suffered from a widespread natural disaster. To donate, apply for a grant, or learn more, visit alpaorg P4P. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 5, The Braniff Debacle, Deregulation Hits Home, Part 2. In the beginning, things were fine between Braniff's pilots and its president, Harding Lawrence. His aggressive expansion of routes and purchase of new equipment put money in pilots' pockets. Avoiding the traditional distance from the pilot group that old Tom Braniff had left as his managerial legacy, Lawrence sought out MEC chairs for insider chats. Lawrence's choice of members for the board of directors raised eyebrows among many close observers. He liked to select board members less for their business acumen than for the impression they made. Several were Texas oilmen whose principal claims to fame were their luck at picking locations to sink wells. Others were nice ladies who met the Texas definition of class and circulated well at cocktail parties among the Dallas business elite. Politicians and bankers rounded out the boards Lawrence helped to choose through the years, and none of them knew beans about the airline business. Maybe that was the way Lawrence wanted it. He had big ideas that were going to take Braniff on a wild ride, and he didn't want a board that might restrain him, like Bob Six had done at Continental. Suave, debonair Harding Lawrence would charm the socks off his board while he launched Braniff into the stratosphere and they rubber-stamped his every move. To begin, Lawrence hired a New York advertising agency headed by Mary Wells, whom he subsequently married after divorcing his wife of 37 years. Under his new wife's stylish tutelage, Lawrence completely reshaped Braniff's image. First, he outfitted Braniff's flight attendants, who were predominantly female and referred to as stewardesses in those days, in wild, high-fashioned outfits. He would have had the pilots don similar garb, but except for new double-breasted uniform coats, the pilots successfully resisted Lawrence's wilder ideas. Lawrence hired internationally famous artist Alexander Calder to paint the exterior of a Braniff DC-8. Calder's unique, avant-garde paint schemes made Braniff instantly recognizable, even famous, an airline curiosity situated at the cutting edge of style and fashion. Lawrence inaugurated Ultra Service, which took first-class passengers into the realm of chef-prepared French cuisine and fine wines. All served in high style, although critics scoffed that this pampering was more hype than performance. Lawrence's ideas about luxury service were geared to the Texas elite's notions of that concept, which Mary Wells deftly adapted into an advertising blitz featuring slick, international themes. At her urging, Lawrence had the aircraft interiors redesigned, featuring first-class seats of soft leather. The corporate headquarters at Braniff Place, just outside Dallas, 
featured an indoor-outdoor swimming pool, tennis courts, a miniature lake, and a hotel. Most striking of all, through an agreement with Air France and British Airways, Braniff flew the supersonic Concorde, the ultimate statement about where Lawrence was taking his airline. And, impressively, Braniff grew. Under the old system of regulation, Lawrence could expand his airline only by acquiring another carrier or by competing for new route awards. He was successful at both. Braniff had acquired the International, which allowed it to use the initials BI, in 1948 when it started service to South America. Lawrence sought expansion with a vengeance. He gambled heavily in 1967, engineering the acquisition of Panagra. This bold move into the Latin American market gave Braniff about half of all U.S. service to the region, mainly through its Miami base. And it only whetted Lawrence's appetite. Braniff pilots from those heady days remembered Lawrence boasting that they would soon be flying into every European capital. They even heard talk that the airline would absorb Pan American. For the pilots, those were the best of times. The rapid expansion of the 1970s, and especially the post-deregulation period following 1978, made Braniff a wonderland of rapid promotion. A pilot who was hired just before the boom in 1964 would move to the left seat in a scant five years. Junior captains were common in the airline's BAC-111 jets, and Braniff's pilot force grew to levels that left veterans of the previous era stunned. At its peak strength in 1979, Braniff employed more than 2,700 pilots, 125 of whom were captains flying B-747s. Lawrence had applied for almost every route in sight. He bought new equipment and hired new pilots with what seemed like reckless abandon. Braniff's logo became familiar on several continents. In a regulated environment, as a mid-level carrier, Braniff dominated the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. But Lawrence was no fool. He knew that when the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 took effect, Braniff could not survive unless it expanded. Wiser heads figured that Lawrence was overdoing it, that this massive expansion would lead to trouble unless all the brakes went Braniff's way. But there was a certain method to Lawrence's madness. Probably because he misunderstood history, Lawrence plunged. He knew that the last time the government flirted with deregulation, after the 1934 airmail cancellations crisis, those entrepreneurs bold enough to expand their operations to serve unprofitable routes had come out on top. Deregulation hadn't worked, so when the government re-regulated the system, the airlines actually serving routes had an advantage over the competition. Many of them were, in effect, grandfathered in. Studying aviation's past, Lawrence probably concluded that the future would belong to the bold. So, he rushed to serve unprofitable routes, hoping that he could hang on long enough for re-regulation to save him. He made no secret of his plans. He told dozens of people when he began his rapid expansion that, within a couple of years, Braniff would be as big as United or gone. History is a tricky teacher, and Lawrence learned his lesson the hard way. Many people, including Alpha's leadership, opposed deregulation. 
Lawrence, like ALPA President J.J. O'Donnell, figured that an unregulated airline industry would never make sense, and that eventually the government would have to re-regulate to preserve safety standards. But in the interim, while the government was coming to its senses, rapid expansion seemed logical. If the banks were willing to lend him the money, Lawrence was willing to take the gamble. From his point of view, he really had no choice. In the deregulated environment, only two kinds of airlines would survive, very large and very small. Braniff would either become a megacarrier or be merged out of existence, a fate worse than death to a man with Lawrence's towering ego. In hindsight, there were problems with this analysis. First, the political climate, conservative and free market in orientation, was running against the concept of government regulation. Ronald Reagan, who would win election in 1980, believed passionately that government was the problem, not the solution. Reagan's promise to get the government off the backs of the American people meant that re-regulation would not be an option during the 1980s. Secondly, the banks urging Lawrence toward ever greater debt were themselves engaged in some dubious lending practices. Loan officers received promotions and bonuses not for making good loans, but for their volume of loans. The banks, flush with petrodollars deposited by price-gouging OPEC nations, had to lend money out. So loan officers were encouraged to pressure applicants to overborrow. Farmers in the Midwest and Lawrence took the bait. For them, assets were mostly in land and airplanes. Not only could it be foreclosed, they would almost have to be foreclosed on, partly to appease angry taxpayers. In short, somebody was going to have to fail to serve as an object lesson about traditional values, and no help would come from the government. In the wave of deregulation that swept the country, beginning during the 1970s and culminating with the excesses of the 1980s, the government was willing to let the big banks loan themselves silly. A bank as big as Continental Illinois, up to its eyebrows in non-performing loans, was, like Lockheed and Chrysler, too big to fail. Such a catastrophe might pull down the entire financial and banking structure. But Braniff was small potatoes. No significant national interest would be affected if Braniff failed. Massive failure of a really big company might warrant government intervention. But Braniff's tragedy would affect only its own employees, not the nation at large. In fact, half the existing airlines could have gone out of business without significantly affecting the nation's economic health. And in truth, deregulators like Alfred Kahn believed that a certain number of airline failures was a necessary correction on the road to a free market airline system. Braniff was the Christmas turkey at this particular banquet. In an impossible conflict of interest, one of the banks that had loaned Braniff money also had one of its officers on the airline's board. This board member, who was in a position to second-guess Lawrence, essentially had veto power over management decisions. By threatening to deny an extension of credit unless things were done the bank's way, Braniff's management was denied its basic prerogatives. Put simply, when the airplanes securing the loans became more valuable to the bank on the open market than the interest they earned on the airline's loan, the bank could force a sale, 
regardless of the effect on Braniff's operations. Under these circumstances, Lawrence did what any self-respecting executive would do. He resigned. But Braniff's circumstances only got worse. Under John Casey, who had served as Lawrence's chief of operations, boardroom skirmishing reached new heights. Board members, increasingly worried about their fiduciary responsibility and the possibility of stockholder lawsuits, cut more deeply into managerial functions. They didn't want Casey because they figured Braniff's problems were in the marketing area, and they wanted a slick salesman instead of an old-fashioned operations guy. At this point, things were serious, but not desperate. As usual, the pilots were told little or nothing of the board's infighting. But the Braniff pilots' respect for Casey was strong, and they stood ready to provide whatever contract concessions were necessary to help him succeed. In retrospect, Casey's hands were clearly tied. The board wanted somebody else, and they would shortly get rid of him with Howard Putnam. In a surprising move that Braniff's pilots could only watch helplessly, the board lured Putnam away from Southwest Airlines, a non-ALPA carrier. The board's thinking was that Braniff's future under deregulation was as a low-budget carrier. Putnam, having worked at the prototype airline, was the man to oversee that transition. Closer analysis by the board would surely have revealed that Putnam's career at Southwest hardly prepared him to cope with Braniff's problems. Southwest Airlines was something of an anomaly. It originated in the forced merger of the Dallas and Fort Worth airports. The authorities extracted written promises from all existing airlines that they would discontinue scheduled service to Dallas Love Field and Fort Worth Amon Carter Airport when the FAA mandated construction of new combined Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, DFW, was complete. The FAA did its part by forbidding any interstate carrier from serving the old airports, which were supposed to become general aviation fields. Furthermore, in what was known as the Love Field Compact, all the existing carriers agreed that they would not serve the Metroplex at the old airports on their intrastate routes, which the FAA had no control over, because Texas had three of the ten largest U.S. cities within its borders, Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio, an intrastate commuter airline modeled on California's Pacific Southwest Airlines could do the established carriers and DFW considerable damage. Southwest Airlines began flying in June 1971, backed by several influential Texas politicians, including Herb Kelleher and future Democratic Party National Chairman Robert Strauss. This kind of backing caused one editorial observer to comment during the company's formative stage, Southwest Airlines won't use aviation fuel, just political power. Because Southwest had not existed at the time of the Love Field Compact, it was not bound by the agreement. Following extensive legal challenges, the airline took to the air, complicating life for every airline that served the Texas market from DFW. Southwest did Braniff, and other Alpha carriers, substantial damage. So it didn't take a genius to make money at Southwest. In any event, Howard Putnam had nothing to do with it. During the airline's formative stage, Lamar Muse had learned the business at American and made Southwest a success. Muse, 
figuring that anybody smart enough to pay pilots half the going wage could make money, eventually left Southwest to form his own airline, Muse Air. Putnam found himself tapped as Braniff's savior. It was a poor choice. No Braniff pilot who lived through this era had a good word to say about Putnam. In fact, a majority of them deeply suspected conspiratorial involvement of other airlines in his choice. Put bluntly, they believed that Putnam never had any intention of making Braniff a success. Others believed that Putnam was hired to be the airline's undertaker. Putnam himself, by his own admission, couldn't understand why Braniff's board wanted him. He left his comfortable position at Southwest because they offered big money and a no-risk challenge with a golden parachute. Upon arriving, he said publicly that he doubted Braniff's ability to survive. So, Putnam took over Braniff in September 1981. He cut fares as the Reagan recession deepened. Braniff's cash flow problems only got worse as American matched fares in a deepening spiral. Only one thing would have saved Braniff, some sort of direct federal assistance. The most obvious regulatory move would have been for the Civil Aeronautics Board, then approaching Sunset itself and quite incapable of taking action, to guarantee Braniff's tickets. Travel agents, who were crucial to any airline's success, could then have sold Braniff tickets without fear of getting burned. More important, American, Braniff's chief competitor, would have had less incentive to bury the airline. A federal edict requiring other airlines to honor a failed Braniff's tickets would have been a powerful incentive to help Braniff survive. In the last analysis, American did offer to help. American CEO Robert Crandall telephoned Howard Putnam, hoping to put an end to the ruinous price war. On some routes, Braniff and American were both losing money flying airplanes with full loads of passengers. Incredibly, Putnam resisted the efforts to reach an accommodation. Instead of grasping at this last life preserver, Putnam secretly tape-recorded the conversations with Crandall, hoping to prove a violation of antitrust law. These criminal conversations, even had they resulted in stiff jail sentences and fines for every last American executive, would not have saved Braniff. On May 12, 1982, a teary-eyed Howard Putnam, still barely familiar with his job, announced that Braniff was shutting down. The Braniff pilots faced a crisis no other pilot group had ever confronted. All eyes were now upon ALPA. Next time on Flying the Line, the aftermath of the Braniff debacle. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 5, Part 2 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright ALPA 2022. All rights reserved.